Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 18th, 2017, and my guest is author Robert Wright. His previous books include The Moral Animal and Non-Zero. His latest book, Why Buddhism is True, argues that Buddhism and the practice of meditation is consistent with evolutionary biology and much of what we've learned from the latest research in psychology. And that's our topic for today. Bob, welcome to Econ Talk. Well, thanks for having me, Russ. I'm really happy to be here. Now, despite the title, Why Buddhism is True, uh, this is not really a religious book. It reminds Reminds me a little bit about a story I've heard attributed to Enrico Fermi, but it's probably been attributed to other scientists as well. Supposedly, a student comes into Fermi's office, and as he's leaving, he notices there's a horseshoe over Fermi's door. And the student turns back to Professor Fermi and says, Professor Fermi, you don't, you don't really believe that, do you? And Fermi says, well, of course not. But they say it works even if you don't believe in it. <laughs> and your claim... Reminded, your book reminds me a little bit of that story. Your claim is that meditation and the Buddhist approach to mindfulness works even if you don't have a religious belief in Buddhism, say. So let's start with what you mean by meditation and what you mean by mindfulness for people who, aren't, uh, uh, who haven't heard of these topics and how they're applied in your book. Yeah, well, first of all, you're right. The book isn't about the, the kind of most plainly religious parts of Buddhism. In other words, the parts that are often considered supernatural, like reincarnation. Um, I do focus on claims you can evaluate from the standpoint of modern psychology and philosophy. And as for meditation, there are a lot of kinds. I mean, there are Buddhist kinds and non-Buddhist kinds. And even within Buddhism, there are a number of kinds. There's Zen meditation, and sometimes that involves contemplating these koans, you know, these cryptic or paradoxical sayings or questions. Um, Tibetan meditation often involves visualization, uh, sometimes elaborate visualizations. Uh, Mindfulness, the kind I I focus on mainly in the book, uh, is about, it's kind of an exercise in attention, you could say. It's about Calming your mind enough, typically by focusing on your breathing for a while, but calming your mind enough so that you can observe things with more care and clarity than usual. A lot of those things are inside your head. They don't have to be. You can, you can focus on sounds mindfully, but a, a lot of the things you focus on are inside your head, like feelings. Uh, and, and with feelings, um, you basically... You employ, I guess, what you could call a kind of objectivity of perspective that is unusual. I mean, usually what we do with feelings is react to them, uh, typically without thinking about them very, or very much or observing them very closely. But with, with mindfulness, you might take something like anxiety that you normally kind of react to and try to get away from, and you just kind of accept it, live with it, and and thereby allow yourself to actually examine it, that can can lead to a kind of loosening of its grip on you. Um, and this is probably the most famous use of mindfulness is, is in this kind of therapeutic 
way you view uh, feelings, as they sometimes say, non-judgmentally, and this uh, loosens the grip, uh, particularly of unpleasant feelings that you'd like to see the, the grip of loosened. Um, but I would say that mindfulness meditation, in principle, goes a lot deeper than that and has a deep connection to some of the most radical philosophical claims uh, made in Buddhism. And in the book, I kind of start out with the therapeutic stuff. Uh, and, and, and as the book progresses, I move toward the, uh, the deeper stuff, I guess yeah. you could say. You break the reader in gently. The, I want to start with the therapeutic side, though, uh, because I think for someone who has never meditated – or attended a silent meditation retreat, and I've done both. Um, and in advance of that experience, uh, I'd never in advance of, of attending a silent meditation retreat, I'd never meditated, and I went in with a great deal of skepticism. And I would imagine that listeners who have not meditated or attended a retreat like this uh, would have an incredible amount of skepticism about it. And so, I, I think it's worthwhile to talk a little bit about this claim. That I, I would say it's more about emotions than feelings. Of course, they they can mean the same thing. But that various emotions that arise in us can be controlled in a way they otherwise can't be through the process of meditation. That that seems like an absurd claim, right? So if I if I said to you, uh, and some people say this, I don't agree with it, but it's a common claim. Oh, you've just listen, watch your breath. Just sit for twenty minutes a day and and try to clear your head and pay attention to your breath. And you'll become a happier person. And that's, again, for a non – a person who hasn't meditated, that sounds ludicrous. And for someone who has, I don't think that's quite enough. Uh, so try to flesh out the claim to make it a little more plausible for people who have not experienced it. Right. Well, first of all, like you, uh, I had never I, – I actually had tried to meditate before my first silent meditation retreat. I had just never succeeded. So, so a silent retreat was – what convinced me that there was uh, something there? I think a lot of people who are more natural meditators than I am uh, might not have to go to a retreat to to become uh, convinced of, of the the power of the technique. But but you're right that uh, a lot of times people say just focus on your breath. I think that can calm people. I think that can be a good thing in itself. But but with true mindfulness meditation, you are going. Uh, deeper than that, and, and, and that is really a preparatory phase. The calming of the mind uh, is just preparation um, to view things uh, more more carefully. And, and just to give people a sense of the potential power of mindfulness, uh, I remember um, after a few weeks after my first meditation retreat, I was doing this crazy thing I do sometimes, which is I had a big talk the next day, and so I woke up in the middle of the night and I started thinking, wait a second, what if I can't get to sleep? Then I'll do a terrible <laughs> job of the talk. And, of course, it's completely irrational to respond by the news that you need to sleep by failing to get to sleep. But that's the way anxiety can work. And so I, I thought, well, I'll sit up, do what you're supposed to do with mindfulness. Sit up, not run away from the feeling, not, not just observe it, be with it. And in a few minutes, uh, I got to a point where the anxiety in my abdomen, and, and, and meditation makes you more aware of where in your body feelings are, for starters. Uh, but I started, it just, suddenly I was viewing it the way I would view a piece of abstract art in a museum. It was interesting, 
it, I wasn't particularly attracted or repelled by it. It was neither good nor bad. It was just kind of interesting. I was examining its contours. It had completely lost its grip on me, and shortly after that, it dissolved. Now, I'm not going to claim that uh, an experience quite that dramatically therapeutic is trivially easy to attain by any means. I mean, this was like right after a meditation retreat when you're kind of in the zone. But some measure of that, I think, is accessible to people with a relatively modest uh, commitment and, and uh, a meditative commitment, you know, maybe 20 minutes uh, in the morning or something. Um, and I believe it is a step toward actual clarity. And, and, and this is, I mean, I don't want to go to, to tell me if I'm going too fast, but, but I think one of the fascinating things about Buddhism is the claim that the reason we suffer is because we don't see the world clearly, which is also, they say in Buddhism, the reason we make other people suffer, the reason we kind of misbehave. Um, and so by clarifying your view of the world, you can become a happier and better person. That's an amazing claim. And I think looking at your feelings in a sense more objectively is an example uh, of a way that that can work. Um, but but I, I just do want to emphasize, it's kind of an analytical exercise. I mean, I emphasize this for your listeners in particular. I view, I mean, there's an old saying, I, I mentioned these different kinds of meditation that, that, you know, Zen is for poets, Tibetan meditation is for artists, uh, Vipassana, which is a kind of meditation closely associated with mindfulness, is for psychologists. And it is, it is in some respects, an analysis of your own mind. Yes, I want to get your thoughts on um, where that power comes from that you alluded to in that night before your speech. I've I've had a number of moments like that as well. And, of course, we could be fooling ourselves, which is always interesting. But let's um, assume we're not fooling ourselves about our, the control that we might have. What, what I found extraordinary is the things that used to create anger in me, impatience, uh, annoyance, arrogance, and various other emotions. Uh, by observing them and, and watching them somewhat dispassionately arise in my Self, uh, I've been able to, as you say, they, they lose some of their power over us. And it's interesting, there's a strong uh, tradition of meditation in Judaism, makes the same uh, mystical uh, thinkers in Judaism made the same claim that by letting your demons in rather than running from them, which is our standard, one standard method we have about our demons, uh, our second method is to fight them. Uh, the third method, which uh, some would argue just seems to make it worse uh and the third method is to just let them in and uh that's part of who you are you can't avoid it you have lots of flaws and character traits that that you um that influence you influence you and by observing their influence rather than just being influenced uh in the in the heat of the moment you can have some serenity and also this is the more important point to me you can decide what to do rather than having your anger decide what you do and I think that's, to me, the biggest payoff. So the challenge that I want to raise, though, is I wonder, in your experience, how much of that control, to the extent you have, and of course you don't have it all the time, it's not, <laughs> I don't mean to suggest I'm now this masterful, uh, self-controlled person, but I feel like I have more control. I feel like I'm a better husband, a better father, as a result, friend. Uh, how much of that do you think comes from the, in your case, sounds like about 30 minutes to more a day of just sitting and, and observing the breath or being aware of your thoughts versus the intensity 
which is very daunting for most people of a five-day or a week-long or a two-week meditation retreat where you're forced to confront yourself. Um, and I found that very powerful. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Um, well, retreats are important to me. And this I'd say especially about my first retreat. Um, because for one thing, they allow you to see what is possible in principle. Right By the end of my first retreat, I felt radically transformed. I was seeing beauty in places I had never seen it before. Um, I was much less judgmental of people. I remember at the beginning of this retreat, you know, I was like sizing up the other retreatants. And since, you, since you're not going to talk to them, you know, you might as well use entirely superficial grounds, which, let's face it, we're inclined to do anyways. And I remember seeing this guy... Uh, wearing a T-shirt that said Juilliard on it and thinking, oh, well, aren't we special? Yeah. You know, and then at the end of the retreat, yeah, it's, 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 this is what we do, right? And, and the guy, at least I do, I, I never know whether I'm worse one. than average. You're the only one, yeah. Bob. <laughs> well, I'm really, then this has been a very unfortunate experience for me. I, I had been under the illusion that I was not uniquely bad. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and then at the end of the retreat, the silence was broken. We can ask questions. And this guy stands up. He's the most timid, insecure soul you can imagine. He's virtually quivering as he asks his question. So, of course, I totally misgaged him. But, um, you know, and then when I called my wife at the end of the retreat, I mean, she says that before I had said anything about the retreat, just by the tone of my voice, she was delighted about the new Bob. Now, as you know, uh, this doesn't last forever. You know, unfortunately, life is not an endless meditation retreat. Reality intrudes. And you kind of wind up hanging on to what uh, you, as much as you can, of the mindset you had at the end of the retreat via some kind of daily practice, if you, if you maintain that discipline. And that's, that's worth doing, I think, for sure. But, but the retreat shows you what is in principle possible, and in, in my case at least, helped convince me, along with other things, along with considerations from evolutionary psychology and so on, but helped convince me that this actually is a clearer view of the world. The one I had at the retreat was a clearer, because after all, I didn't know anything about that guy with a Juilliard t-shirt. It was a delusion to think that I had enough information to judge him, right? It was kind of an emotionally driven illusion in some sense. And I think, so, so retreats helped convince me of the potential and in a certain sense validity of the practice in being a way to clarify uh, your vision. And then they also serve as periodic reinforcers. I try to do a retreat close to once a year because, you know, as the, as, as time wears on, it's easy to start getting lazy about your practice on any given morning, even though you are convinced at some level that your day will go better. If you practice, you may feel you don't have the time or whatever. And so I like retreats um, as a little booster, uh, and I guess those are the two main functions I see them serving. I want to talk a little bit about the judgmental uh, comment you made. And it, the big theme in, in the reading I've done and in the meditation I've done is to try to reduce my judgmental uh, aspects toward myself and towards mm -hmm. others, which is very um, – that really goes against my grain. I, I spent a lot of my life being judgmental of myself uh, and of others. Um, uh, and felt virtuous about it, of course, uh, even uh, which makes it even even more um, uh, difficult to think about. It might not have been such a good idea, but one argument would be against that of uh, being less judgmental is that it tends to make us a little more um, wishy washy, uh, a little more maybe too tolerant of things that are not 
mm-hmm. not good. And also, uh, there's a passivity in some of the mindfulness literature uh, that, you know, just, just be in the present. Just, in, just enjoy life right now because that's all there is. That's a standard claim. And of course, that's not really all there is. There, there's the past, which haunts us and maybe should. There's the future, which we want to enjoy uh, and need to plan for. And so uh, comment on that, those sort of criti- – I would call them critiques of, of the, the, the Buddhist approach – of um, not being judgmental and, and being relatively, uh, quote, living in the moment. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, it's interesting that actually, if you go back and look at the seminal text that is millennia old on mindfulness, the, the Satipatthana Sutta, um, there's actually no mention of living in the moment. There's no phrase that could be trans- translated as the moment or the present. Um, and, you know, to some extent, meditation, the meditation that is being taught in the West, is being adapted to its current context, in which staying in the moment is so challenging because of the technological environment and so on. That said, I, I don't think it's an invalid emphasis. I mean, if you do all the things that it says to do in that ancient uh, sutra, you will wind, you will be in the moment because it's it's asking you to systematically observe things. You're feelings, your thoughts, your perceptions, sounds, and so on. And so you will um, be in the moment. Now, as for the judgment question, I mean, that's another thing that's actually not explicit in the text. But again, I think it's it's true to the spirit of, of uh, Buddhism to say that you're viewing your feelings without judgment. And the question you raise is a common one. In other words, um, if you know, if, if in a way the goal of Buddhism, broadly speaking, or a goal, is to allow you to uh, sustain well-being even in adverse circumstances, which is one thing it is about, isn't, is there not a danger that you'll become content with any circumstances whatsoever, you know, and, and not judge certain things as bad things you want to change? You hear this from social activists, for example, yep. this concern, like, well, I lose my passion for social justice. My feeling about that is it's a very good in-principle question and not a very urgent in-practice question. In other words, I can imagine you going so far down the path that you would sit around meditating pretty much all the time and be a pretty contented person. Or, or even if you weren't meditating all the time, you know, go through life so contented with things, so non-judgmental uh, that... You, you were not a particularly positive force in the world, even though I would say at a minimum you were at least no longer part of the problem, and that's something, right? Yeah. Because if you really follow the Buddhist path, you will have relinquished the selfish, uh, the obviously selfish impulses and the subtly selfish cognitive biases that lead us to misbehave. So, so in a way, it's not a net loss if you really, really get close to, you know, so-called enlightenment or whatever. Um, but I think for almost everyone, that just that question just doesn't arise. Speaking for myself, I do care a lot about issues of policy and, and various ethical issues. And I think for me, it has been a challenge to not let the intensity of my concern get in the way of actually wisely advancing the causes I'm interested in. And, and I think, honestly, that's the position of 99.9% uh, of the people who who raise these questions is is you know 
it would be a good problem to have hmm. if, if you if you attained such equanimity, you know, that you were no longer trying to do the things that you feel need doing right now. I just I don't think it that that problem arises very often. Yeah, for me, the um, I, I just find it fascinating. I've read a lot of books on uh, the present moment in various formats. It's not literally some are literally called something close to that, but. Uh, they don't um, – I don't find them very helpful or interesting. Uh, what I do find helpful and interesting is the idea that when I'm talking to someone, I'm giving them my full attention, uh, which is right. not easy to do. And meditations help me to do that rather than at a party looking around and thinking, who else can I talk to? Who's more interesting? Right. Um, right. And I think that's a terrible thing to, to be doing that. And I'm really glad I do a little bit less of it. And the other thing is um, – it does help you appreciate, as you pointed out earlier, and as you mentioned a number of places in the book, moments of natural beauty, uh, human compassion, um, poignance in the world that you missed just because you weren't paying attention, that you just didn't – and they, they're simple things. It's a flock of birds overhead. It's uh, the leaves changing on the trees. It's It does give you an opportunity to savor life, I think, a little more vividly if it's used correctly. It really does, and it's not entirely clear to me why it does. In other words, I might think that the case would be what people often assume it is, which is that if you're looking at some of your feelings in a more objective way, there is some kind of like dulling of feelings in the aggregate or something, but that's not really what happens. I mean, it's true that some of the less fortunate feelings and some of the more more kind of distorting uh, feelings can lessen in impact, but, you know, in, in other realms, I mean, you, you take more delight in aesthetic experiences of various kinds. I remember my first meditation retreat, I noticed that some people were eating with their eyes closed, and I'm like, what's up with this? And then I realized they are so immersed in the flavor, and they just want to make so it total intense. immersion. Yeah, yeah it, it's incredibly intense. I mean, the, the, and it's not even the kind of food I would normally think I'd like. It was, you know, it wasn't. Uh, um, it, it was it was very healthy food, you know, and uh, um, it was just uh, amazing. Um, I I had an experience in my first retreat where I was taking a walk in the woods, and I saw a weed it's called a plantain weed of a kind. I I spent a lot of time trying to kill this weed because it had infested my lawns. And suddenly I looked at it and I thought, like, why have I been trying to kill this weed? I mean, viewed, in a sense, dispassionately, it's just as beautiful as all the other plants in the forest. And, by the way, I don't want to get into, like, kind of Buddhist arcana. I mean, I do toward the end of the book. Uh, and, and, in fact, I use this very example. But I actually think that's an example. What I was experiencing was an example of what is called, kind of misleadingly, the apprehension of emptiness in Buddhism. I think what that, what that really means is, you no longer impose the kind of sense of essence on things, right? So I wasn't feeling essence of weed. There was a subtle way that feelings had been shaping my perception of a weed that I hadn't really understood. And this was like a deep, a subtle and yet deep perceptual shift. And I think a lot of times the perception of essence gets in the way, especially when we impose kind of negative essences on certain humans without sufficient evidence and so on. Um, but, but the point you're making is, is right and, and very important, that although on the one hand kind of the hallmark card version of mindfulness live in the moment, 
is A, not true to the original text, and B, doesn't really get at the deepest part of this. It Still, it is a very welcome side effect yeah, I want, of I, mindfulness meditation to appreciate, look, the person you're talking to at the cocktail party, whom you normally might be trying to get away from, uh, or, uh, and, uh, and to appreciate just the, the visual uh, and beauty and other kinds of, of sensory beauty in the world. So, so I want to take it in a slightly different direction and I to bring it to some standard uh, econ talk themes that listeners might be uh, might be aware of. So some people might say, "Well, but you're wasting your time talking to that loser at the cocktail party," and and that plantain weed is 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 nasty. It's it's not as pretty as a rose, and et cetera, et cetera. And I think you you use the phrase essence, use the word essence, but I think of it, and this is the tie into other recon talk themes. I think of it as a narrative, you know, a narrative that we have running in our head about who's worth talking to, what's worth looking at. And we have that same narrative running in our head about politics. We have it running in our head about religion or anti-religion. We have it running in our head about our marriage, about our family, about our friends. And as a result, we fit everything into that narrative. Um, we have uh, a terrible tendency to cherry-pick reality and and ignore the stuff that, that doesn't fit the narrative. So that person with the ugly T-shirt or the arrogant sneer or whatever it is obviously is a waste of time when in fact – you could be wrong. That weed is – you've got this baggage you've been carrying around because you, you try to get it out of your yard, but it is beautiful. Yeah. Uh, a starling my, – my favorite example of this is a starling is a gorgeous bird. There are a lot of them, and they're also a big nuisance to a lot of people, so they got a bad rep. But if you mm-hmm. watch a starling in the sunlight uh, – I mean in the uh, – yeah, in the sunlight, it's a gorgeous iridescent creature that you've been sort of – Talked into culturally decided without much thought, without any yeah. thought. Uh, and that's your feeling about the weed. That's your feeling about that person you're treating like a weed to be avoided, ignored, gotten rid of. Right. And I just think um, when the things you're talking about work correctly, the clarity that you're talking about isn't some mystical, um, you know, I'm, I'm seeing the universe in some new way, although some, that can happen. But it's really as, as much about the fact that you're missing out on so much because you're you're running this movie in your head that you've directed and you've got the ending figured out and anything that doesn't fit in with that plot you just cast out and you're missing out. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, I'd kind of distinguish between the weed and the person at the cocktail party. I would say it is just objectively not true that the weed is ugly because beauty, that's an entirely subjective thing. So if you don't think it's ugly, it's not ugly. Now, there is such a thing as a case where if you were talking to one person at a cocktail party rather than the other, it would do more for your career. That's Absolutely. possible. That's possible. No doubt. And so, so that's a slightly different case. At the same time, um, you know, if you, first of all, you're right. People, I, look, I, I just started for the first time doing Uber and Lyft and so on. I mean, every conversation, I, I've, I've talked to cab drivers all my life, but so this is not in a certain sense new. It's just kind of a new demographic that I'm talking to. And, uh, and uh, you always learn stuff. And, and, uh, and moreover, um, you know, if you, if you look at the way you're feeling at a cocktail party when you're just urgently trying to, you know, maximize your social and professional opportunities – are you really happy? It's it's a restless, unpleasant feeling, right? It's it's like a desperate 
feeling. Now, that said, you know, if you, even if you talk to these very accomplished meditators and teachers, they are not entirely impervious to the, 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 even the career implications of things. You, you don't have to worry about becoming entirely blind to that. Still, it is worth remembering that you just never know what path will lead to what, right? It's like, uh, um, I mean, I just, well, I, I can give you an example, but uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I just thought of this. It's like, the title of my book, Why Buddhism is True, first of all, it has pros and cons. I can understand people find it, finding it obnoxious and arrogant. I am willing to defend it if pressed, and I have a whole appendix of the book that does. But one thing that's interesting is one of the more painful experiences of my life was a review of my last book, The Evolution of God, uh, by a guy, Jerry Coyne, who wrote a book called Why Evolution is True. Now, I didn't consider the review, the review fair, as is not unusual among authors who get negative reviews. Yep. I wrote a big, the New Republic kindly let me, let me print the reply in the actual magazine. But in any event, I suspect, I mean, I just consider that a wholly unfortunate, bad experience. In retrospect, I suspect that if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have had, I mean, uh, that's probably the reason the phrase why Buddhism is true popped into my head, because he had occupied such a prominent place in my memory, and I have to say, for commercial purposes, at least the title seems to have worked. Uh, you know, book's doing well. So the, the point is just, you never know. You never know what experience is going to lead to what. And that's a reason for us all to obsess a little less over trying to seemingly maximize the, the kind of career or whatever kind of potential of every moment that we engineer. So I'm kind of just reaffirming what you said. I, I just, just extend it to a different econ talk theme. I, uh, there's a certain level of trust in emergence rather than in control. Uh, there's a certain, even at the individual level where you have to, I always like to say the dishes don't do it themselves. You have to do them. You can't rely on the market to do your dishes. Um, or some unseen process or self-regulating process. A lot of things in our daily life require our intention, our execution, our planning, and so on. Uh, unlike, say, worrying about whether there are going to be enough pencils next year because the Chinese are sending a lot of uh, kids to school who used to live in the countryside, and, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to have any pencils, and somehow that problem solves itself. We don't need a committee, and I don't have to worry about it. I just show up at Staples, and they sell me pencils. I don't have to be told well, we sold them all to the Chinese. They're gone. There are no pencils till 2019. So I, I, there's a, an inevitable top-down aspect to daily life as an individual and or say as a family uh, or a family member. But I think the process that, that you're talking about, and again, it's it's certainly in many religions, not just Buddhism, of of letting things unfold without trying to manipulate every moment. It certainly makes you happier. But mm -hmm. some people would say, well, that's just – you're just naive. You're foolish. You're letting things happen when you need to take charge of your life. Uh, it's not so much just being a cork in the ocean. It's about the process itself and a willingness to uh, be surprised. And I think for a lot of us, surprise is painful. It scares us, and uncertainty scares us, and we want control. And uh, that's a nice segue to your the evolutionary side of this book because I think obviously – we spent a lot of our evolutionary history without control at all, uh, living outside so uh, with predators. So it, there 
it's a natural impulse, and I'm not sure it's such a healthy one in our environment. So talk about and react to that if you want, and then talk about what you see as the role of evolutionary psychology in, uh, in thinking about these issues. Well, I certainly agree uh, that I mean, I'm reluctant to agree because it does sound a little like a Hallmark card cliche, but, you know, when I say something about letting go and, and, and you know, going with the flow and, and so on. But there, there truly is a kind of uh, logic behind it. Um, the, uh, I also want to reaffirm what you said a little earlier about stories. We have stories, uh, and in a way this is a segue to the evolutionary psychology part, because we are creatures who tell stories about ourselves. I think we're designed by natural selection. Of course, I put designed in quotes, since natural selection is not a conscious process, but I think our minds are designed by natural selection to develop and cling to a story about ourselves. You know, I am the person who writes good books. And so any reviewer who gives me a negative review is a bad Obviously person. Obviously an idiot. <laughs> right. And I will, and I will immediately look for bad things to say about that person. I mean, this stuff happens automatically. You know, you don't have to think about any of that to, to and yet when you look at it objectively, obviously this is not clarity of vision. And, and, but you know, because you're, there's no book that shouldn't have some negative things said about it. And doesn't mean that the person who said them is an idiot. Um, the, uh, and, and, and broadly speaking, this is, this is kind of the broadest connection of Buddhism to evolutionary psychology is that, as I said, the, the Buddhism says we are inclined to suffer recurringly. We are inclined to not see the world clearly. There is a connection between the two. If we saw the world more clearly, we would suffer less. Well, when I emerged from writing my book on uh, evolutionary psychology, The Moral Animal, I was convinced of two things. We were not designed by natural selection to be happy. Uh, for starters, um, gratification is designed to evaporate. The, you know, you, you, eat, you eat food, feels good for a while, then you hunger for more. That makes sense as a way to design an animal if you want it to stay alive, right? For it to get recurringly hungry uh, and for the gratification to evaporate. Secondly, feelings like fear and anxiety are natural they're they're designed for a purpose although they often misfire in the modern environment which i get into in the book and complicates things still the point is natural selection is willing to use our suffering as a motivator in many ways and the other the other take home i had after after writing about evolutionary psychology is we're not designed to see the world clearly there are trivial examples of this like people tend to overestimate the speed of approaching objects which makes sense because it's, it's better to get out of the way better too soon than too late, right? Yeah. But that's an out-and-out out misperception. That, that's a clear, objective misperception of the world. And there are all kinds of subtler uh, misperceptions, uh, some of which are emphasized in Buddhism and borne out in, in evolutionary psychology. But, but at any rate, I decided, this is one reason um, I decided to write this book. I, I thought that Buddhism needed to be looked at, and, and mindfulness meditation in particular, um, it, with a kind of systematic reference to the process that created the human mind, natural selection, because I think that does tend to validate a lot of the claims made by Buddhism and tend to explain why uh, mindfulness meditation can be not just uh, a successful therapeutic exercise, but a way to actually clarify your vision because these feelings that are built into us are again not designed to get us to see the world clearly they're just designed to motivate us 
that's you know incredibly interesting and i i guess the only thing i the thing i was that troubled me about a couple of things in the book one not that i give it a bad review bob don't worry um <laughs> The 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 thing that that troubled me one thing that troubles me about the evolutionary psychology approach is it it is a little bit of a just so story after the fact and I think it's very hard to disentangle say my desire for control with my primitive ancestors my personal genetics the cultural baggage I've picked up during my lifetime the cultural baggage I was given by my parents when I was small and can't remember um, so to me it's a, it's a little more complicated and in fact you could argue based on the data that natural selection must have designed us for suffering because we do a lot of it now i understand yeah. that i understand your claim that it, it we're, we're burdened with a a primitive mind un not so fit for modern times but an alternative interpretation would be the human lot is to suffer the human lot is because mm-hmm. because if for no other reason, we're the only animal that, is, that I know of that knows its death is inevitable and has to live every minute of adult consciousness with that awareness. I want to raise a question which I didn't find in the book, which I, which I miss, about consciousness. Consciousness is really what gives us suffering. We, we could have been an animal all the other animals they have they have primal drives they can't resist them at all they don't right <laughs> they're right. they're really bad at it uh, we're not good at it but we're better than they are in some dimension i suppose or at least we think we are maybe that's an illusion but it seems to me that the evolution of consciousness the awareness of our our suffering mm-hmm. our awareness of our challenges in life um and i i don't want to be a pessimist i think there's a lot of glorious things in life obviously i'm just being a little bit um, uh, devil's advocate here, but it seems to me that consciousness itself is a big source of our of our challenge, and I don't think we have a very good evolutionary understanding of consciousness. So I want, what do you think of that uh, argument? Do you think we we have a or will have an understanding of consciousness that will help us, or do you think we've already solved it in the current psychology literature and the evolutionary psychology literature? Um. Let me first quickly say you're right about the kind of evidentiary challenges that evolutionary psychology faces and actually evolutionary biology. Showing that any trait is actually a product of natural selection is all, is a distinctively challenging thing in the sciences. And I talk about that in my book on evolutionary psychology. But, but you're, you're, you're right that different, um, different claims about what is adaptive, a product of natural selection, deserve different degrees of confidence. And that includes the thing I said about uh, approaching objects. We don't we don't know for sure that that's an adaptation, but but I deal with that in in, in the uh, evolutionary psychology book. You're right; it's a definitely a valid question. Um, I'd also emphasize I agree with you. Suffering is built in by natural selection. That's part of the problem. It's not the only, but but you're right; it's not the only problem. So so anxiety is natural. To care what people think about you is natural, and for that to sometimes cause anxiety is natural. But then in a modern environment, you're thrown into a situation where you're suddenly speaking to 100 people you've never met. That's a new kind of situation, so it's not surprising that public speaking anxieties um, are particularly problematic and particularly unproductive. It doesn't, you know, they usually are not helping you. But anyway, on to consciousness. Now, um, my view of consciousness is, first of all, 
it's mysterious. Um, uh, in fact, I'd say if you, if you want, uh, uh, a book title that is arguably as, um, audacious as mine, it's Daniel Dennett's Consciousness Explained, um, (laughs) at least as audacious, I might say. I I don't think we, I don't think we have a satisfactory explanation of, um, of consciousness, um, I think you're right that self-awareness introduces a new dimension to suffering. I assume that when my dog feels pain or fear, it's unpleasant. But it's true that knowing that things will bring, it's like when you're at the dentist, you know, knowing, you know, it's like the anticipation of of the unpleasantness is half of the problem. So self-awareness can bring new kinds of problems. Um, if you mean... I mean, let me, let me say something about consciousness that may not be what you're interested in, but uh, I don't and care. it may may be too cosmic, and it may yeah, I'm not interested in anything. Maybe maybe too metaphysical, either in the legitimate Western philosophy sense of the of the word metaphysical, or in some indefensible sense. I don't know, but um, I, I sometimes think that consciousness. I mean, it's kind of a mystery why it's with us to begin with, why it is like something to be an animal, because you can, in principle, imagine. You know, animals that are built like they're built do what they do, and it's not like anything to be them. They don't have subjective experience. But in any event, there is subjective experience. Um, And uh, one thing I wonder is whether it's like, for reasons we don't totally understand, the way complex consciousness can develop in this universe is through an evolutionary process that creates... Uh, you know, these complex biological systems of information processing. But by virtue of the nature of the dynamics of natural selection, there has to be, in a certain sense, a distortion of consciousness, a warping of it to bring it into existence, because (laughs) this is, stop me when I'm, stop me when I'm going too far, Russ, but um, because of the weird uh, criteria by which natural selection designs things, whatever gets the most genes into the next generation um, wins. I mean, after all, that is it is that criterion that so often fills our consciousness with a, a, a kind of a, a, a grasping, a recurring dissatisfaction. Um, it, it, it's, it, you know, rather than letting us relax into a simple awareness of and appreciation of the world, right? It's because we were designed by natural selection that our consciousness is so often, um, I don't know, you might say adulterated by this grasping, and I would say out and out warped. I mean, our perception is out and out warped in various ways I talk about in the book uh, as a legacy, I think, of the fact that natural selection created the mind. And maybe it's the case that we can, in principle, use the reflective power that, as you noted, we have to reflect on the way our minds work and engage in things that even change in the way the way our minds work, such as meditation, to remove at least a little of the, what I'm calling the warping from consciousness and, and let it relax into a state that is a lot more pleasant for us and I, I would say at least as productive as us. Now, I may have said it at least as much as you want to hear about consciousness. No, right. no I want to, I'm happy to say a little bit more. I'm going to try to push it in a different direction, which is uh, a number of serious philosophers have suggested that there's no evolutionary justification for consciousness. Uh, 
these are atheists, by the way. Uh, it's important to note. Uh, they're not trying to justify a, a non-evolutionary view of the world. I, I would add, by the way, that I believe in God. I'm going to come back to the religious aspects of my meditation maybe at the end, but I, I don't think believing in God and living, leading a religious life is inconsistent with, with evolution. I have no problem with it. Uh, I know others disagree with that, but I just thought that might be important to mention. But a lot of serious philosophers who are not religious think that there's no evolutionary uh, explanation for consciousness. We're going to need a different understanding of biology and evolution to get to understand how the mind is where it is today, the modern mind, the human mind. And that's a weird thought for a book like yours because you're arguing that we're burdened, our consciousness or our brain is burdened by these this evolutionary legacy and that Buddhism or meditation can unburden us. And yet um, it's kind of weird to think about the possibility that, that it's not evolution. I'm not saying it's something else. I don't I, you know from a secular perspective, we have no idea what it is, but it's a little bit weird. Well, the whole thing is weird. Uh, the, uh, I mean, I think my own guess is that, um, you know, there's some kind of metaphysical law in the, in the legitimate sense of the term metaphysical that associates consciousness with certain kinds of information um, processing. Um, I, I want to say, uh, and, and this is related to God in a certain sense, because I've actually argued in, uh, in other places, I think never with as much clarity and care as I, I, I should argue it at some point, but I've, but I've made the argument that if you step back and look at the entire evolutionary process, not just the biological evolution that created human beings, but the cultural evolution, meaning technological, you know, all kinds of, you know, scientific, political, so on, evolution, that has gotten our species to the brink of a global community and that has built this thing that looks like a global brain, the Internet. Yeah. I have argued that um, it's not crazy to think that there's some kind of purpose, uh, larger purpose unfolding, even if you have a strictly materialist view of what drives it, which I basically do. I mean, I just, uh, natural selection created us. That set in motion these material technologies and so on. So you can have a materialist view of the whole process and yet step back and see it as, in a certain sense, a single kind of co-evolutionary process that's been building something that looks like a giant planetary organism, and I think it's not crazy to wonder whether that in some sense manifests a larger purpose, leaving aside the question of what, whether what instilled the purpose was a god or something more like some kind of meta-natural selection process, whatever. But the, the point is, if, if you view it that way, then maybe uh, when, when people like you and me recommend reflecting on our, our feelings and thoughts with an eye to revising the way we perceive the world and behave, uh, that on the one hand, we seem to be flowing against the stream of natural selection. And in fact, in the book, I say, look, if it helps you to think of, of mindfulness meditation as a rebellion against natural selection, fine. In some sense, it is because you're, you're kind of trying to rid your mind of some of the distortions it built into us. That said, it could be that if we want to progress in the larger evolutionary sense, in other words, build a cohesive global community that is not fraught by all kinds of tribal conflict, ranging from sectarian conflict in the Middle East to political polarization at home in America, as we see now, it may be that if we want to, to do that and sustain the evolutionary process in that larger sense, 
we need to to attain some kind of like metacognition of one kind or another, whether it's via mindfulness meditation or whatever, that does give us a critical perspective on the minds that natural selection left us with. Does that make sense? So, well, it's it's a there's a lot there. It's a very provocative set of thoughts. My footnote to it is that uh, you don't have to be religious to think that there are some glorious things in the world that have nothing to do with natural selection. Um, you know, our love of uh, our love of beauty. It, it's hard to understand that 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 is uh, selected for. It's it maybe it's just a byproduct. Maybe it's just something that came along. We don't we don't understand it, obviously. But there are many many things, and, and the idea that we have a meta consciousness as a as a species through things like the internet, through econ talk, just to pick up slightly less grand thought that that there's a that it's such a beautiful thing to me that there are tens of thousands of people listening to this conversation not simultaneously because they're hearing it recorded but somehow we're together and it, and it, I get wonderful email from you out there who you know you say you know I feel like I you write me and you say I feel like I know you so so well which is weird because you don't know me at all the listener and yet somehow we have this communal experience which uh has, I don't think it's anything to do with extending the species, but or genes in the next generation. But it's a beautiful thing, and um, yeah, it is. I mean, there are evolutionary psychologists who have made arguments that, in a certain sense, um, well, that a lot of our aesthetic preferences can be um, explained by natural selection. Um, and I'm generally a booster of explaining a whole lot of things via, via natural selection. That said, when I appreciate a, on a meditation retreat or in daily life the way a more relaxed consciousness, a more relaxed mind is more appreciative of beauty, I sometimes wonder, you know, just to get cosmic, and whether uh, appreciation of things is almost the default state of consciousness. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, and, 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 and it's, um, and again, it gets kind of warped in a certain sense in the normal, in its normal everyday uh, workings. But I, I, I certainly, I certainly do not believe that consciousness, per se, is adequately understood. Yeah, well, I'm a big fan of wonder, and I think wonder and awe are undervalued mm-hmm. in our culture, or not undervalued in our culture, but just we, we all of us, mm-hmm. miss out on it a lot, and it's just. It's out there. It's everywhere. That is a feeling that is well cultivated by meditation. I mean, I have, especially on retreat, I have found myself almost literally, and at the risk of discrediting myself entirely, almost literally caressing a tree. In other words, just looking at the bark, the structure of the bark on a tree, and, you know, examining and going in. You know, I normally don't notice this. It's amazing. Um, uh, you and know. There, and there, and I'll, to reduce my credibility, I mean, there are many moments in those experiences where, uh, and you write about this in your book, where you're moved to tears by things that don't normally move you to tears. And it's it's a deep question. So where, again, well, that's the real you or some you you've right. created through this bizarre, unnatural experience. But of, it's important because you're, I think you're kind of emphasizing, we are not talking about a neutralizing of experience, yeah, which people sure. sometimes think. They think, well, wait, you're going to dull all your feelings? No, you change your relationship to your, to your feelings. You can become less enslaved by problematic feelings, but in a certain sense, life becomes more poignant. No, I, no, I, I think, and you could argue that's not a good idea. And similarly, you could argue, I disagree, but you could argue also 
one of the things I love most in life is letting my thoughts just wander around, you know, uh, and mm-hmm. see where they go and, and don't try to stop them and don't try to be aware of them. And uh, getting lost in my thoughts is one of my favorite activities. And meditation is, suggests that maybe that's not the best practice. And yet uh, I, I'm kind of addicted to it. And it's interesting to have to deal with that as a meditator. Yeah, I mean, it's true that uh, one of the first things that happens, and we now know this through brain scans, in meditation, when you succeed in relaxing, is that your so-called default mode network quiets down. That's a network that is active in your brain when your mind is wandering. Um, But it's not like you're ending all mind wandering. I mean, you're going to be walking around. It's still going to be happening. It probably has some function but, you know, an interesting thing I've noticed is that, I mean, presumably one function of mind-wandering is you address little issues and you solve certain problems. I've noticed sometimes when I'm meditating, I'll attain a state of calm and suddenly an idea will just pop up that actually is the solution to a problem. Uh, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, in, in my life or it's, it's an idea that I should pursue. And it's important to remember that, uh, and this is, I certainly emphasize this in the book, that there's a lot of subterranean activity in the mind. There's a lot of stuff going on. And in fact, one commonality of modern psychology and traditional Buddhist teaching is to be kind of skeptical of the extent to which what you think of as the conscious self is really in charge in the first place, right? More than I think we realize, the work is being done at a subterranean level by perhaps a variety of, so, of kind of actors in our brain that have different agendas. And the results of the process are kind of injected into consciousness. Um, and so to the extent that that's true, there's less to worry about than you might think of kind of relaxing because the truth is the conscious mind is designed to think it's doing more than it actually is in the first place. Yeah, we've talked about this many times on the program. Uh, the example I always like is uh, Andrew Wiles solving Fermat's last theorem. Right. He, he proves it. Turns out the proof is flawed. He spends a hellish month after month trying to repair the flaw he can't and he's in true talk about suffering he's in total despair and uh just one day sitting at his desk and he sees it he just sees it Mm -hmm. and the answer to how to prove it and so many you know we've all experienced this in daily once you get older you experience this in daily life uh frequently which is you want to remember somebody's name or who starred in some movie or who wrote that Mm -hmm. song and uh, you start thinking about it. You go through the alphabet, trying to figure out what letter it might start with to trigger your memory. And what almost always works for me, and I think it works for everyone, is stop thinking about it. And in 10 minutes, have somebody ask you again. And it just pops right into your head. Something about the way our brain accesses uh, the hard drive, is it's, uh, it's obscured from us, obviously, like, like many things are. Let's uh, not – I probably lost all of our economics listeners, but – uh, in case anything, we're still hanging on. Um, what are the implications of the mindset that you're talking about in the book, which is you just referenced, which is the I feel like I'm in charge, but I, I'm really not, uh, which meditation forces you to confront. Uh, what are the implications of that for for economics, say, or public policy? A lot of people would argue because we don't really know our own best interests, we need to be taken care of, we need to be nudged, paternalism is necessary, and not just, uh, it's not something we should hold our nose at, it's imperative. What are your thoughts on that, After, especially after you've been thinking about this for a long time? 
Sounds like you're trying to steer me towards some uh, Buddhism libertarianism synthesis here. Exactly. exactly. Do, I, do I have your agenda sized up accurately? Actually, not because I already uh, did uh, that with the emergent stuff. Now is your time to bring it back into the. Um, have to run people's it's lives because they're a bunch of crazy you, people. <laughs> I guess I wouldn't. It's not so much that I would see policy implications. At least, I mean, uh, none are occurring to me right now. Maybe if I meditate for half an hour, some will show up. But I think. There's an interesting analogy, just metaphorically, between the libertarian approach to the economy, and I should concede I'm not a libertarian at the risk of alienating maybe some of your listeners, um, but there's an analogy between that and the way the mind works. In other words, the, 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 the libertarian attitude toward the economy is maybe a productive attitude to, wait, to take towards your mind, and, and it is in a certain sense one that's being encouraged in uh, mindfulness meditation, which is to say, trust the, well, trust a certain set of the workings of it, you know, a, a little more than you do. But I wanna, um, I, Bob, I want to push you in the other direction. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the psychology of the book, which we haven't gotten into very much, psychology research, partly because I'm a skeptic about psychology research, but that's a topic for another time. Uh, the psychology research that you bring, and, and you could argue the evolutionary material that you bring, suggests that the human brain uh, leads us to illusion, and certainly mm-hmm. this is the Buddhist perspective as well. So mm-hmm. we're all Ill, full of illusion, full of delusion, and we don't know what's best for ourselves. We eat too many powdered donuts, and, and we don't sleep enough, and we spend too much time on, on the internet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We can't control our urges, uh, and so therefore we need a more powerful state and more powerful interventionist government to take care of us because mm-hmm. we're, we're so deeply flawed. Well, I would just say that to the extent that we don't solve our problems ourselves, uh, there's a stronger case for that. I, I mean, I, I won't rehash all the, the standard arguments, which is that if drug addiction is creating negative social externalities, then it is, you know, then it is a uh, leg- more legitimate uh, public policy target than if it's not, um, uh, although I think you could make a case for it either, uh, in some sense either way, but, but, um, but certainly it's, it's, it's uh, well, I guess I would say that uh, we're talking about a set of techniques when we talk about mindfulness meditation that can empower people to solve some of their own problems without uh, forms of assistance that might have otherwise come from the government in principle. And by the way, the treatment of addiction, there's a specific kind of mindfulness uh, technique. I talk about it a little bit in the book yep. um, that, that, that helps people quit smoking and, and, and so on uh, like that. I mean, I'm, you know, even though I'm not, I, I'm not uh, a libertarian, I'm in favor as, of as much self-reliance as possible in solving problems. It's just almost inherently more efficient. Um, and, and I think this is a major set of tools, um, to use in that regard. I, I don't know if that, uh, responds to your question. I may, I may have continued to resist your agenda. I'm sorry. Not but, at all. Uh, no, that's my, that's, my ideology compels me to resist. No, you took um, me in a direction even that I had, that, that was great. Um, let me mention Adam Smith. Uh, we've talked about his work, the theory of moral sentiments and Smith talks about, um, Man's human beings desire to be loved and lovely. We want attention. Uh, we want to be respected. We want to be admired. We want to be liked, and we want to be worthy of it. Which is the mm-hmm. twist on it that I think 
doesn't fit so well with the evolution. First part fits fine with evolution. Uh, second part's a little bit more uh, is a little harder to square. He argues that we need we want to be we actually want to be good uh, because uh, we want to earn the respect that other people have for us. We want to recognize that we're relatively unimportant relative to other people, even though everything inside us says me, me, me. And uh, and he says all that without relying on benevolence. He doesn't think we're very benevolent or good-hearted to start with, but he suggests that culture encourages us to be less self-interested than we otherwise would be because we want that respect from other people. Right. Uh, and, and we want to have it fully. Uh, reflect on how that fits in with, say, Buddhism or or how meditation might might interplay with that? Well, first of all, I think, uh, you know, it's pretty broadly consistent with evolutionary psychology in the sense that we do, it makes sense that we want the esteem of people. That seems to have been correlated with getting genes into the next generation, having the esteem of people, being highly thought of, having high local status, and so on. And that includes uh, having esteem in matters of moral conduct. We want to be thought of as good people. Now, in fact, that tendency seems to be so strong that we have mechanisms for convincing ourselves that we're good even when we're not. I, I mean, if you ask, you know, survey after survey has shown it, is that if you ask uh, people whether they are better morally than the average person, a large majority say they are. Well, obviously, they're not all right, right? I mean, well, we, crimi- we, criminals, I think, see themselves. I'm sure there's survey data on this, but I, I've seen indirect, I've seen casual data that they think of themselves as basically a good person. Right. right. No, I mean, that, that's the way uh, we are. And, and that's kind of doesn't sound all that harmful to have a slight yep. uh, inflation of self-esteem at the same time. But, 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 but the flip side of that is convincing ourselves that, that various other people who are impeding our short term agenda are bad people. So there's a whole set of moral biases built into us that in the aggregate are not well, to put it in economic terms, are not conducive to social efficiency, really. They, they, they lead to, we waste a lot of time uh, so distorting the data, so to speak, and, and, and telling stories that distort the data, and behaving more badly than we would if we had a clearer view of ourselves. And, so, and meditation, I think, is good about clearing away those obstacles, and in, in, in fact, or those distortions. And in fact, if you, if you ask, what, what, what does Buddhism mean by these crazy-sounding claims like not-self, like the self in some sense does not exist, or emptiness, that things don't have essence? Um, I argue in the book that, I mean, leave aside what the full-on not-self or emptiness experience is like. Very few of us will ever find out. We just won't meditate for five hours a day for five years or whatever it might take us. Um, I think we do make incremental progress toward, in the direction of those things, and that incremental progress is is very easy to understand. It's just a slight uh, dilution of, you know, unfair judgments of people, an exaggerated sense of your own moral entitlement, and things like that, and and, um, I, I think that's all to the good, and, and, and it would be one thing if I was asking people to sacrifice, because I know some people think, well, wait, then I'm not pursuing my agenda. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not getting what's mine. Again, the Buddhist claim, which I think is borne out, is that becoming a better person can align with becoming a happier person and with seeing the world more clearly. That's an amazing claim when you think about it, that you can kill three birds with one stone. But I think it's true. It's not trivially easy. It's not magic. You have to decide that meditation is worth it, stick with it, and ideally view it in light 
uh, in a kind of philosophical light of the kind we've been describing. But I really think the central claim is true. Well, you know, Smith says um, later on, he says, later on, still in the theory of moral sentiments, he says, you know, there are two paths in life to get us admired, respected, and loved. One is fame, power, and money. People who are powerful, famous, and rich get a lot of attention and satisfy that urge. Um, he says the other way is to be virtuous and wise, and uh, he suggests you take the less glittering path, the one of virtue and wisdom. And when I, The reason we can close on this, I, the reason I, I mention it is that I want to bring in a couple things from before as well. I, I, the strange thing I find about the mindfulness movement what, what some people call mic mindfulness, the commoditization and commercialization of mindfulness, so that it's it's going to make you more productive, it's going to make you happier, and I think that's a miss. Uh, it's 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 not what actually happens, at least in the direct consequence. It, it it could be a second order effect through the goodness mechanism, and I do, as a religious person, the part that for religion brings to my meditation is the desire to be good, not just happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's missing from a lot of, say, corporate mindfulness programs, I'm guessing. I don't know. I, I don't spend a lot of time I, in them. <laughs> you go ahead. I suspect that's true. They certainly try not to connect uh, in these in these institutional settings. They tend to try not to connect any of this to Buddhist philosophy, but that just creates political problems yep. for them to the extent that it sounds religious, even though we're basically talking about secular Buddhism, not the supernatural part. But um, – I, I Yeah, I mean, what I'm trying to show in the book is not like how to be happy. There are books like that. I'm, I'm trying to make the case that, in principle, this kind of happiness is a valid happiness, which, in other words, it, it can align with uh, better behavior, a, a clear perception of the world. So, in other words, there can be a convergence of uh, happiness, moral truth, and truth, objective truth about the world, so to speak, in principle, and I agree with you that the best, I think the best way to approach it is not to worry about the happiness part. Uh, be, try to view the world more clearly and try to focus on impediments to behaving decently toward your fellow human beings, um, and the rest will fall into place. And, 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 and I, I try to focus at least on, on those two dimensions. Uh, at least as much uh, as on the happiness part. My guest today has been Robert Wright. His book is Why Buddhism is True. Bob, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. I really appreciate it. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.